Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. The American hybrid journalist activist Gloria Steinem is one of the 20th century's most influential feminists. She shot to prominence as a feminist leader with her 1969 article After Black Power, Women's Liberation, and co-founded Ms. Magazine in 1972. Contrary to common belief, she did not coin the phrase a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle, although it's easy to see why people thought she did, such as being her feminist reach. Her activism has seen her protest the Vietnam War, the apartheid system in South Africa, the Gulf War, and to recently campaign for disarmament in Korea. In her first ever visit to New Zealand, supported by the Embassy of the United States of America, the remarkable 82-year-old public intellectual looked back and referenced her just-published memoir, My Life on the Road, in conversation with Nick Barley. We hope you enjoy this session. No pressure here. I just have to live up to that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> is it true you brought the mayor of Los Angeles with you? I hope so. Is he here? Eric Garcetti, is he here? Is he in the We're audience? Not... We, we can't see, so you'll have to just tell us <laughs> if you see someone raise their hand. Now, uh, Gloria, we're here tonight, um, partly thanks to the embassy, but, but mainly because you have written this extraordinary book. Um, we're going to talk about lots and lots of things. We want to talk about your amazing life. But uh, really, first of all, I'd just like to ask you about this great book, My Life on the Road. And I suppose it, it begins really with the dedication in the beginning of the book. Um, tell us about that. Should I read it? Yeah, would you like to? Okay. I don't want to assume that everybody has read my book, (laughs) so I should read it. This book is dedicated to Dr. John Sharp of London, who in 1957, a decade before physicians in England could legally perform an abortion for any reason other than the health of the woman, took the considerable risk of referring for an abortion a 22-year-old American on her way to India. Knowing only that she had broken an engagement at home to seek an unknown fate, he said, you must promise me two things. First, you will not tell anyone my name. Second, you will do what you want to do with your life. Dear Dr. Sharp, I believe you, who knew the law was unjust, would not mind if I say this so long after your death. I've done the best I could with my life. This book is for you. <laughs> I, I've done the best I could with my life. And of course, you've got so much more of your life yet to lead, and so many more great things could happen. But the thing which struck me about that was, was what he said, you will do what you want to do with your life. And I think that's possibly true that you have. But the extraordinary thing reading your book is that, of course, you've also worked on behalf of so many other people. And so um, I wonder, does it sometimes feel as if you've sacrificed your life on behalf of other people? I don't feel that for a minute, not a minute. I feel so lucky and so, I mean, I can do what I love. <laughs> and it's um, spontaneous and connected uh, you know, I don't meditate as much. I've taken two courses in meditation and never, you know, managed to integrate it into my life. <laughs> but but there's but there's something about being part of a of a movement and being on the road that forces you to live in the present, which happens to be the only time we can live, right? So otherwise, I would live in the future. Yeah. 
So, <laughs> so I'm always thinking, what if? You know. So it's no, it's a gift. I have not. I don't feel for a millisecond that I have sacrificed anything. Right. You've enjoyed it all the way. And what was it that that kicked off this desire to be on the road? Well, I, as a child, because I was growing up a lot of the time in a house trailer because my father was kind of a gypsy and so on, I desperately wanted to live in a house like everybody else and have a, you know, a picket fence and a pony and a, you know, <laughs> right? Uh, so I just kept thinking, I, I thought there were, here's the thing, I thought there were only two choices. I thought either you were on the road or you settled down. And it's taken me all this time to figure out that actually it's a balance between the two that I think is the most, anyway, for me. And I wonder if it's not a kind of cellular memory of the fact that we, um, we are a migratory species. We follow the seasons and the animals and we have a group and you know, I, I just think it's kind of in our cellular memory that we need both. It's a balance between home and the road. Yeah. I mean, your father, uh, he, he was an itinerant man, wasn't he? He spent much of his life on the road. When, when he left your mother and went off in his car. And his yes, he lived from his car, really. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, he, and you write so movingly about this, this man who almost seems to have been lost to you. And then you, in writing the book, you've reconstructed the man that he must have been. Um, he could so easily have come across as a kind of Walter Mitty character, but you, you invest in him some kind of heroic love, I think. Well, when I started to write the book, I, or when I thought about the book, I didn't think about starting with him. Um, and then suddenly I had to, you know, because I realized that that way of life, you know, had been home, you know, for so long that it had really influenced me. And also... We, we were just talking about this off stage. I think it's so important, it's so lucky that I had a loving, uh, kind uh, father who, who was like a, a friend, you know. I, he, he just treated me like a grown-up, no matter how small I was, you know. And I think that's especially important for women, because when I think about the dear women friends of mine who have had disastrous affair and marriage after disastrous, it's because they didn't have good fathers. And so it's hard to grow up knowing that there are good men. Yeah. So, you know, I'm very grateful to him. He's the reason why I'm friends with all my old lovers. Well, <laughs> almost all. <There's> a bit. <laughs> I'd love to know which ones aren't in, in that list. <laughs> but some of the stories you tell about, about the scams that, that your father sort of operated, like he would take you into a bar and, and, and say to a guy in the, at the bar about that you could name bones in the human body. Yes. Do you remember yes. that story? Yeah, no, no. He, he was, uh, first of all, he loved to eat and he loved ice cream. He weighed over 300 pounds, I think, for my whole life. And so... He it would leave me in the car as like a five-year-old or six-year-old. Um, oh no, he, he he would give me fifty cents, and he would sit in the car. He would say, "Get a go and order a malted." And when I come in, pretend you don't know me. It's five, six. Right? <laughs> pretend you don't know me. So so he he could get all of the malted. Do you know those malted milk cans that actually? 
hold two glasses full on their own, but you know, if you are by yourself, you get the extra in the bottom. He was so devoted to getting the extra in the bottom. <laughs> and I was in heaven. What is, what is greater than being a five or six year old pretending you don't know your own father? Giving, <laughs> <right>. Fantastic. <laughs> and by contrast, your mother, you portray her as, as a slightly depressed character. I don't wonder if she had mental health issues. Um, but you, you lived with her at home whilst, whilst your father was on these kind of slightly romantic uh, well, missions. Well, my mother, you know, I, I once wrote a long essay about my mother called Ruth's Song uh, because she could not sing it. And when I went out with that book, people said to me, are you afraid that mental illness, you know, is, can be inherited? Are you worried about that? It had never crossed my mind that she was mentally ill. I said, only if patriarchy can be inherited. You know, <laughs> because she was an immensely talented woman who was a pioneer newspaper reporter and editor before I was born, which I didn't know until much later. Uh, she had done everything she could to make it work uh, with my nine years older sister and my father, who was like the most financially irresponsible person on earth. <laughs> Never filed a tax return. <laughs> right, right. I so recognize bill collectors now because he was always sending me to the door because to, <laughs> what what's the bill collector going to do with a kid who says, no, daddy isn't home, right? <laughs> so, um, so, so you lived with your mother. Uh, yeah, so, so then after they separated when I was about 11, I think, then I was taking care of my mother. But I really... I mean, even after she had been in a mental hospital for a couple of years, uh, they said she had an anxiety neurosis. And I said to the doctor, do you think that means her, could you say her spirit was broken? And he said, yes. Wow. You know, uh, because she gave up everything she loved. She just couldn't make it all work together. And so she became somebody who had lost her profession, her friends, uh, no, I, 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 I mean, patriarchy is inherited, <laughs> but aside from that, mm. I was, I never thought of anything else. Yeah. So this combination of, of mother and father and the different situations they were in led you to a place where traveling was, was what you were going to do. And, and I suppose that that dedication in the book is a hint of the moment when you were, were about to leave for India, and you spent a couple of years in India as you, as you kicked off your, your adult life. Yes, well, I, I mean, I went to India because I was engaged, and I didn't know how to get unengaged. <laughs> it, it, engaged to a very nice man, you know, wonderful person, we stayed friends, but it was clear that it wouldn't be a good idea, you know, that we were just too different. He hunted, let me just say, that, that says it all. Wow. <laughs> So I, and I was attracted to India because my mother was a theosophist, and so I had read all these books about India as a child, but it was mostly that I was escaping. Right. And it, and it was there, was it, that, that you encounter, first encountered the talking circles and, and the, the principles of Gandhi? And, um, did you know about them before you went to India? Or, or no, I mean, you know, this was only a dozen years after independence, so the the kind of hope and idealism that is, was 
drawn to South Africa or you know was drawn to India because there had been this huge, successful, relatively nonviolent struggle. So it had a huge idealistic appeal. And I kind of knew about Gandhi, but not, not really, not in a deep way. But I just fell into a group of people who were walking through villages in Ramnad, a whole area of India where there had been a very severe caste riot. And these Gandhians were trying to bring word of, you know, the outside world cares about you and to have meetings and so on. And they needed a woman as part of each team because otherwise the women wouldn't come out of the compounds. And they were fresh out of women. So <laughs> they, they invited me to do it. And I said, don't you think it'd be a little weird, you know, for this person? I mean, I was wearing saris all the time, but still, you know. And they said, no, you'd be just as weird if you came from New Delhi, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up walking through villages in, you know, with a cup of comb and a sari and watching these meetings being held at night around a kerosene lamp, people talking about the terrible, terrible crimes, you know, that they had witnessed. But the ability to talk about them to share an experience, I would just see in this circle people being transformed over just a few hours. It was amazing. But I still didn't understand that that wasn't peculiar to India. It took me a long time to understand that was universal. Right, yeah. And that's something that, that, that of the, since then, you've, you've really built into your organizing and your activism, and it's something I'd like to come back to. In a, well, I owe a that, you know, I really owe that to the women's movement and... Well, no, all movements start that way, really. Yeah. I mean, our civil rights movement really had a lot to do with people in churches in the South testifying, telling their stories. The Chinese Revolution was rooted in speaking bitterness groups. Uh, I, I think it's probably a universal characteristic. And the women's movement was about consciousness-raising groups. I bet lots of people here remember consciousness-raising groups. And... Now we call them book clubs. <laughs> but there's something, I mean, we haven't been sitting for 100,000 years around fires telling, in a circle telling our stories for nothing. It's, it's our most natural, communal, we, a sense of belonging and learning from each other. It, I, I don't think we can do without it. And, and just today, I had the huge gift of sitting with, I don't know, about 18 Maori women in a circle for a couple of hours. Um, some, I mean, I didn't, I hadn't been there before, of course, but a lot of them had not met before either. And it was kind of life-changing in the end. Because I think there are people here who were there. So during the discussion, oh, yeah. we oh. can... <laughs> welcome. I hope that my Maori welcome was, wasn't, uh, was delivered <laughs> without being too insulting. Uh, I tried my best. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, uh, there's a lot to talk about, and, and I really want to make sure that, that you get a chance to ask, ask questions as well, but could we just... Um, 
think about journalism, because journalism has been in, in a sort of underlying framework for your career and the written word, which you apply so beautifully to this book. And I wonder if we could just very briefly go, go to what I think was an auspicious year for you, 1963. On the journalism side, it, it was a breakthrough year for you because of your Bunny Tales uh, project in which you dressed up as, as a Playboy bunny girl and then, and then wrote about the experience. Could you just tell us about that? Well, it was kind of a career error, okay, because I, I was just barely beginning to be taken seriously, just this much, you know, because otherwise you were supposed to write about food, fashion, children, which are good things to write about, but I didn't know about food, fashion. Um, and because I was working for a magazine at the time when the Playboy Club in New York was first starting, I kind of made a joke and said, Lillian Ross, you know, should go and be a bunny. I don't know how many people remember this wonderful New Yorker writer, Lillian Ross, which uh, you do. <laughs> I loved her writing, and I could just imagine, because she had a great eye for detail that she would demolish, you know, and there, there was this little silence, and they said, no, you do it. You know, so I ended up doing it kind of by accident. And I kind of bought a little bit the idea that it was glamorous, this job, but I soon discovered that it was anything but glamorous. I had made up a phony name and a f background that I said I'd been a, a secretary and I wanted a more interesting job and so on. And the, the young woman who was interviewing me, she said, you know, honey, if you can type, you don't want to work here. <laughs> <laughs> So that was a clue to how bad it really was. <laughs> but that, that was a, a great moment for you in, in terms of your journalism career. Well, it, it, but not really, because then, I mean, I'm glad I did it. I'm not sorry I did it, because it did make a difference in the working conditions right. of, the, of the women who were working in the Playboy Clubs. Just as one, for instance, they were told that they had to have an internal gynecological exam in order to serve liquor in New York State. You can't make this stuff up, <laughs> which of course was completely untrue. And and once I wrote this, then you know at least that that was gone. Yeah. So I'm not sorry that I did it, but it did mean that from for I got assignments to I don't know pretend to be a hooker to stand up. I you know I mean and I had just got an assignment to write about the USIA and suddenly that disappeared. You know? yeah. So it wasn't a good career thing to do, but I, in the end I was glad I did right. it. I, I, I had the impression, I mean I know at the time there, were lots of, there was this kind of method journalism going on with, with Hunter S. Thompson and, and there were people sort of getting into characters like that, but, but it seemed to me that that, that kick-started the, the, the possibility for you to write politically more than, than you had been able to do prior to that. Um, no, it, it, it took a while after that, right. actually. And, and even now, I would like to say, at my advanced age, people still introduce me as an ex-bunny. And, <laughs> and people still say, well, what does she know? She was a bunny. Really? Yeah, so it's, it, it just, it's haunting. Well, that's shocking. Well, I'm sorry I raised it. But, but <laughs> no. No, it's, it's it, because as I concluded, you know, there's a way in which all women are bunnies. So, I, you know, I, was, I felt a, a solidarity, <laughs> but, um, but it has been a blight in some ways, oh, that, or, or maybe 
a kind of thermometer of <laughs> where I am. Right. right. Well, that, let's fast forward to, to a different moment then. 1972, uh, or late 71, when there was a pilot issue of Ms. Magazine. And then the, 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 the magazine launched in June, July 1972. And I think it was the, the, almost exactly the same month that Broadsheet Magazine launched here and Spare Rib launched in the UK. What were the conditions which made that possible? Desperation. Right. <laughs> because there were a lot of us who felt that we couldn't publish what we wanted most to write and what mattered most to us. And so we wanted to start a magazine we actually read. <laughs> uh, a part of this is because women's magazines are controlled by the advertising. So if you need clothing ads or shampoo, you have to write articles about fashion and how to wash your hair, even if you already know how to wash your <laughs> hair. <laughs> and the, the very the often wonderful editors of women's magazines, there's, in the States, there's still no other women's magazine except Ms. that's owned by women. So... You know, you're stuck with all these other pages and you're trying to sneak an article or two in. So we just wanted to be able to be free of that. It was difficult to get ads, needless to say, because we weren't supplying the complimentary copy, as, as they say. And in the end, though, we did spend a lot of years and I think we managed to change the advertising imagery somewhat we actually did better economically without ads. And I think that that is a real message for the web, because I'm worried about the degree that the web is dependent on ads too, although it's so evanescent, it's more difficult to influence the content. Yeah, but it was also, uh, it was, you, you were involved for many years and then in the end you became part, part of the, a group which owned the magazine and it, it, it seems to have been like throughout about a 20-year period, it was something which was a passion but also a difficult, a struggle to keep going. But so yes, it was, it was very, very difficult. Um, if, I'd known how to, if we had all known how difficult it was, we might never have, have attempted it. But, um, but it was worth it. You know, I mean, the, the kind of letter that we got and often still get <clears throat> is fundamentally saying... At last, I know I'm not alone. You know, that the magazine comes into your house like a friend and says, hello, you're not crazy, the system is crazy. <laughs> and, and also, it could introduce new writers and poets. And I mean, we published Alice Walker, and you know, I don't know. I mean, it was very, very satisfying and extremely difficult. I, they used to say to me when I first arrived in New York, uh, you know, you don't, and we were trying to be political reformers, and the old pals would say to us, you don't know anything until you've met a payroll. They were right, <laughs> you know, because I used to wake up in the middle of the night wondering if we could meet the payroll. Wow. I, th I think people don't realize how hard, how hard you worked on that, on that side of things just to keep that going, and, and what an important influence it, it's been over the years, internationally as well, as well as in the States. 
but I bet there are people here. I mean, anybody who's tried to start a magazine, a small publishing company, um, you know, it's it, in order to be independent and autonomous, it's both great and very, very, very hard. It's it's worth it. You no, know, I'm. It's totally worth it. But um, there were moments, I have to say, a lot of moments when I used to fantasize that maybe the building would burn down. <laughs> and then it would be, I would be free and it wouldn't be my fault, you know? <laughs> yeah. So let, let's move on along. I mean, activism and journalism have always been linked together, but I'm just trying to tease them out now just so we can get a, a sense of, of the, the picture of, of what you've been doing. And, and can we just go back again to 1963, to that, I called it, auspicious year. That was the year when Martin Luther King marched on Washington and you were not sure about whether to, to go along but, but then something, some urge told you to, to go along and, and witness that mm. event. Y yes, it's hard to remember how controversial it was at the time because now it seems inevitable, that march. But it was, uh, there was much fear that there was going to be violence, that that uh, it would interfere with uh, progressive anti-racist legislation in some way because there would be violence. Uh, you know, there was many people, including the Kennedy administration at the time, was just very, very worried about it. Um, and it was a kind of miracle, you know, in the end, because there were just, I mean... Thousands and thousands and thousands of people, like an ocean, like an ocean of people, all being kind to each other, being open, being peaceful, being, you know, it was like a miracle. And, of course, Martin Luther King standing there, you know, giving his famous speech. But, but he, he wasn't going to actually say the I have a dream speech, was he? Or he hadn't got around to saying it? Yeah, no, he, he, he gave his whole speech um, and... Then the singer, where am I, what was her name? suddenly called out to him, uh, tell him about the dream, Martin, tell him about the dream. And then he did the famous I Have a Dream sequence, but it was something of an accident. And, and, and also it was a big consciousness-raising moment for me because I had been walking with a woman and her daughter who I didn't know, uh, and they were saying or the mother, anyway, was saying, how come, where are the women on stage? You know, where, how come there are no women speaking here? What, we're singing again? Is that all we're doing? You know, and, <laughs> and I didn't have the wit to, to realize that it didn't make sense that Rosa Parks wasn't there, the, you know, all the great women of the civil rights movement weren't there. So the, that was uh, an inequity that, she made me see. Yeah. And how things have changed since then. I mean, again, if we fast forward to 1977, I think possibly the most important moment for you, National Women's Conference in Houston that you helped to organize. Yes, I, you know, this is something that's lost in history, and I hope that now there's more writing about and there'll be movies about but the, the National Women's Conference in Houston was like a constitutional convention for the women of the United States. We'd spent two years in every state uh, 
electing delegates and uh, voting on what issues to bring forth. It's, it's to this day the only representative meeting I've ever seen that really was economically, racially, ethnically representative because it was built into it. It was the first time that a large number of Native American women from many different tribes and nations came together. It was, was really incredible, and it allowed the movement to have common issues. But it also was maybe the, the most democratic meeting I've ever been to. And I was just worried that we couldn't bring it off, you know, that because we had great opposition, the ultra-right wing was marching against us, and they had a whole convention on the other side of town, which was represented no one. You know, they weren't elected at all, but the press treated it equally, you yeah. know. Yeah. This, one group says the sky is blue, one says it's green. We don't know. You know, the right, right, right. Yeah. So it was a, a, this moment that you really um, made connections with Native American people, and, and that's something which which has continued to be important to you. Um, and you, you talk movingly about a number of, of women that you've met. From, from yes, native, at, at that communities. Uh, because I was um, kind of being the scribe for the various groups of of women of color who were writing their 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 part of the platform, and just physically, I was going from one to the next just to collect what it was that they they wanted to say. So I I was listening to this uh, large number uh, of women from Indian country, from many many different groups, and I had never heard any. I mean, I I suddenly just from listening to them, I realized, wait a minute, all this was here before before Columbus showed up and wrecked everything. You know, that, <laughs> you know, and they were funny about it. You know, they would say, you know, what did Columbus call primitive? Equal women. <laughs> it was a revelation to me because we don't, I don't know about you, but we don't study history when people started. We study when monotheism, patriarchy, nationalism, and other bullshit started. So, <laughs> it, so, so from that moment, I, I just wanted to know more. Yeah. And it was people like Wilma Mankiller who, who really worked with you and, and you spent a lot of time with um, understanding the indigenous uh, ways, the matrilineal cultures of, of indigenous people of America. Yes, we, we sometimes wrongly say matriarchal, I think, which is, would be a hierarchical structure just in reverse. Most of the cultures, as far as I know, were matrilineal and were about balance and wholeness and circles, and you know, not about not about hierarchy. Um, I, I don't know how many people here know Wilma Mankiller. Um, she was the elected chief of the Cherokee Nation, a really great, great woman. Um, if you asked her uh, nicely about her name, she would explain that it was a honorific. And it used to be white man killer, but they had dropped the word. <laughs> it. Was, it meant somebody who protected the village, right? And if you asked her not nicely about it, she would say, I earned it. <laughs> she, she was uh, a great, calm, funny, kind, deep person. 
and a great leader who had the gift of helping people become independent, not dependent. It was amazing. Yeah. There was, you know, there was a press conference the other day, this is on the subject, where George Clooney was giving some press conference about a film, and some, some guy at Cannes said, the way you're talking, you sound like a future president of the United States of America. And when I read that, I thought, did anyone ever say that to Wilma Mankiller? No, but she should have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah How absolutely. is it that in, in America that, that you just have to be a good actor and then people suddenly assume you're capable of running the country <laughs> if you're a bloke? She got the, the Medal of Freedom during the Clinton administration. And therefore, and I was, went with her to the White House and it was a wonderful ceremony and, you know. But it was interesting to watch her because she was a chief of state, really. And she knew it. Right. Right. And I think President Clinton knew it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So she was bestowing the honor on him by, by turning up. Well, but they were equal, you know, if she wasn't. And actually, she had been uh, elected to head a large group of uh, uh, different tribal leaders, heads of tribes and nations, that Clinton, to his credit, President Clinton, for the first time ever, invited to Washington for for, you know, to recognize all these nations. And she was elected by them to be the spokesperson. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that came out of that, that, that gathering in 1977, as far as I remember, is, is uh, Betty Friedan was there. And the, 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 there was a kind of slight divide in the feminist movement in America at the time. Um, she, was, she described the, the lavender menace um, which is something which, which, of course, you disagreed with profoundly. Can you tell us a bit about that situation? Yeah, well, at, at that meeting, she came to agree, too. But I think, you know, she was uh, a decade older, and she, the group she spoke for, very importantly, were women who were college-educated white women living in the suburbs, standing next to their kitchen sink, saying there must be more to life than this, right? And that is a crucial, terribly important book. It didn't speak to me because I was already in the workforce and getting shat on. I thought, well, great, if they wanted to. <laughs> and and it, it was published at the height of the civil rights movement without including, uh, you know, there were no women of color in the, in the book and so on. And also she was sincerely worried, sincerely worried, that including lesbians and talking about, uh, you know, this as a political issue would discredit the movement. So that, you know, was difficult. That was difficult. But by the time of the Houston conference, when we passed a resolution with these 3,000 delegates supporting lesbian rights as part of feminist uh, necessity, you know, uh, she ultimately voted for it. She got up and voted for it. So you, you, she was important, but you managed to persuade her to change her mind on this crucial issue uh, about recognizing the lesbian you, you experience. You know, I think, I think that people think we all knew each other. Do you know what I mean? I maybe, I don't know, maybe I was in meetings with Betty maybe 10 times in my life, you know. There I were, you knew everyone. There are a lot of different parts of a movement, right? Yeah. Yeah. One thing you don't talk about in your book, which I wanted to ask you about, is, is the transgender experience. Um, how, how does that fit in with your, with your worldview? 
Well, I think anything that blows up the gender binary is a good thing. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the, 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 the old languages, Cherokee and, and uh, Malayalam and, you know, the Kwe and the San in Africa, they don't even have gendered pronouns of he and she. A person is a person. A human being is a human being. How great is that? And and then you see this growth of division, which is all about controlling reproduction, really. So uh, patriarchies, I mean, that's what it comes from, from c controlling reproduction. And you see this growing, growing, growing gender division until finally this table has a gender. And you know, <laughs> the pens have genders. I mean, hello? It's just a... <laughs> So, um, you know, we're, I think we're trying to get back to the idea of individual uniqueness, shared humanity, circles, and to cross the, the boundary of gender, as people are, have always done but are now doing more obviously, is, is a good thing in the long run. I, it's hard, I think, for women to a woman who's walked around for 50 years as a female human being can't quite believe that somebody who hasn't done that knows what it's like to be a woman i think that's where the resistance comes from yeah and this is what jermaine greer was referring to in her right comments. and and when you consider it racially you can understand it because if somebody said, you know, I've always felt like, I've always felt African-American, always, and now I'm African-American. You can imagine what the reception would be. Mm. So, you know, it's, there'll be bumps in the road, and it's not easy, but it's fundamentally, I think, the right thing, you know, because it is dispensing with false categories. Yeah. That's great. Uh, we're, we're going to open up to the audience shortly. Just a couple more things I, I wanted to touch on briefly. One of them is, is the way in which you, you've managed to find humor and, and a lightness of touch in, with, in the face of some extraordinarily difficult issues. And, uh, and one of them, which is particularly close to my heart, is the issue of femicides on the Mexican border. This is the systematic killing of women, young women, young, young female children there, um, which is, I mean, it's a desperate situation and, and one which we all want to change, and, and yet you write about it in the book in a way which, which turns it, um, you create a kind of surreal moment around this. In, in yeah, well, that, yes, that was because of a whole episode which is too, too long, too long to, to tell. Yeah, yeah. But, um, no, I, but I'm so glad you brought up laughter because that is crucial. I mean, I always knew it was crucial, of course, but the our our Indian country, our native cultures n know it in a much much deeper way. I mean, they know that laughter is the only free emotion. You can compel fear, obviously, as we know. You can even compel love if someone is isolated and dependent for long enough. In order to survive, you become enmeshed with your captor. You think you're in love. But you cannot compel laughter. It happens when two things come together suddenly and make a third. 
Uh, it happens when you learn something. It's like an orgasm of the mind.
uh, and all of these issues are majority issues in public opinion polls, but part of our problem is that we have such a low voter turnout rate because we don't charge people when they don't vote. <laughs> Uh, and for a lot of other reasons, we we vote in a lower proportion than people in India with all the problems of poverty and illiteracy and so on. So the, the question is not how people feel. The public opinion polls are good. The question is, will we actually get out there and vote against all the efforts of uh, often right-wing controlled legislatures to keep people from voting? You know, I mean, I, every time I campaign, I see people who have had to line up for three, four, and five hours to vote, and not everybody can do that. Yeah. Are you confident Hillary will win? I think now, she, yes. I, in 2008, I did not think that she could win, but it didn't matter because you know, Obama, she and Obama were the same on, on all the issues. And, you know, I, it was... I really thought it was too soon for deep reasons. We're, we're mostly raised by women. We associate female authority with childhood. You could see from our guys on television who were otherwise smart, okay people who were saying things like, I cross my legs whenever I see Hillary on, on, on television. She reminds me of a first wife outside alimony court. I mean, you know, ridiculous things. And I think because the last time they saw a powerful woman, they were eight, they felt regressed. <laughs> right. you know, and it's deep, you know, it's deep, and it is, it is going to be difficult. But I think it's very possible. Yeah. And, it, and, and Bernie Sanders, is, he is a great diagnostician. He can tell you what's wrong, but she knows how to cure it. Right. In 1893, New Zealand was the first country in which women were given the vote. Yes, thank you. Um, is it not extraordinary to think that, that possibly in 2016, the most powerful country in the world could, could vote a woman, a woman in, as a president? And, is it not and great then we will have reached the point which Wilma Mankiller remembered. Yes. And your contribution to that journey, I think, has, has been not inconsiderable. So on behalf of all of us, thank you for that. Our 2016 Auckland Writers' Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.